the last time I was on a pastoral team, we used to meet for our weekly meeting every Tuesday morning. And one Tuesday morning, one of the younger members of the team announced that he and his wife were to have their first baby. Someone said, what is it, a boy or a girl? He said, it's a boy. And then someone said, what are you going to call him? And he said, oh, I want to call him Athanasius. Someone said, what does your wife think of that? Well, she's not so sure. Six months later, little Joshua was born. (laughs) Today, we're going to look at a psalm by King David. And it's a psalm in which he reflects on the question, how to rule in a world, God's world, in which he knows God, and yet the majority of the people don't. And it's readily applicable to us, knowing God, how do I live among those who don't know God? Now, those of you who followed the funeral arrangements of Her Majesty the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, will know that when the Queen's body and coffin were brought into uh, Westminster Hall, the choir of the, uh, the Royal College sang this psalm, Psalm 139. It is a classic psalm. Look at it there, page 974. It would be really helpful if you've got it in front of you. 24 verses, four stanzas, six verses each. Uh, In my time when I was a chaplain of a retirement home, I'd often say to elderly people, would you like me to read your favourite psalm? And I can imagine, no one ever said this, but I can imagine someone saying, oh, please read Psalm 139, Mr Cook, but leave out those awful last six verses. Because you just wonder how they fit. It's a beautiful psalm up to verse 18. Uh, you could say it's an the omni-God. Verses 1 to 6 is all about his omniscience. He knows all things. Verses 7 to 12, his omnipresence. He is everywhere. Verses 13 to 18, he is omnipotent. He works in all places, even in the womb. The all-powerful God. And verses 19 to 24, there's another omni. Omni-mystery. What sort of omni are we seeing here? Now, let's look at each of these. Look at verses 1 to 6, human knowledge. Now, this week I went down to the eye-opener down here in Victoria Road, Nick, and I also went down in another direction to take my car to have it registered. Now, I shouldn't get those two things mixed up. I don't think my mechanic would be good at prescribing glasses and I don't think Nick would be good at fixing my car. Human knowledge has this major limitation We know a lot about a certain subject, but we can know nothing about lots of other things. And when it comes to time frame, we may know a lot about now, less about the past and even less about the future. But have a look here in this psalm. Look at what it says. David says that God's knowledge has no such limitation. O Lord, verse 1, the personal covenant-keeping God, you have searched me and know me. Verse 2, when I sit in private... And when I rise to go out into the public sphere, you know me. And in the externals, you know me. But look at verse 2. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Verse 3. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar. The word he uses is the word the wind blows through the grain and blows the chaff away. You have blown through me and you know me that well because you have blown through me. You are familiar with all my ways. You know everything I'm going to say tomorrow, Monday. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. It's an amazing knowledge. Such knowledge, he says, verse 6, is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. 
Now, you probably remember being an adolescent. Who understands me? My parents didn't understand me. My siblings didn't understand me. My school teachers didn't understand me. The youth worker at the local church didn't understand me. No reflection on them because I didn't understand me. Do you know you this well? I saw an interview recently of Prince Charles and the interviewer said, how would you describe you? It's a very good question, but it's a hard question, isn't it? How would you describe you? How well do you know you? My joys, my fears, my anxieties, my motivations, the things I do in public, the things I do in private, my hidden thoughts, you know it completely. You are the God to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. You knew how many husbands the, the woman of Samaria had. You knew Nicodemus's need. You knew when Cain killed his brother. You knew where Achan hid the loot. You know all things. You are known. And that chorus, the perfect friends, the one who knows the worst about you, but loves you just the same. There's only one who loves like that. And Jesus is his name, his wonderful, wonderful name. Perfect knowledge. But the psalmist, that makes seem uneasy. Look at verse 7. I don't want to be known that well. So how can I escape a God who knows me that well? Look what he says in verse 8. If I go to the extremities vertically, if I go to the heavens, or I go down to Sheol in the depths, if I go horizontally, as far as the east is from the west, the dawn and the sea for David was in the west. Even there your hand will lead me and hold me fast. If I go to the dark alleys, if I get out that priceless phone and I'm quite alone with it, no one sees, but there I am, I see. But look at what he says. Even, verse 12, the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There is no dark crevice where you will not know the presence of God and he will be there. The God who knows me is the God who is with me in every circumstance. Now look at verse 13 to 18. Isn't it remarkable? The omnipotent God. Remember, David is writing in the 900s, in the 10th century BC, before a great deal of knowledge about life in the womb. But this is beautiful, divinely inspired poetry. Look at how emphatic he is. Look at verse 13. For you, and the emphasis here is, for you, you Yahweh, you Lord God, you yourself created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Uh, He goes down to verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together like the uh, tiny work of the tapestry in the tabernacle, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Verse 14, this is awesome, he says. I praise you, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Verse 16, underline that. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He's the provident God. He's established that every day I will live and then he'll take me from this earth. 
What a remarkable, how precious to me your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Would I, to, out, to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. This is just a wonderful, powerful God. You knitted, you fearfully, you wonderfully, you intricately wove me together. You are precious. When we were last in the ministry in Ashfield, we had a session clerk called John Oates. Some of you will know John Oates. John Oates was a plant breeder. And he would sometimes have to get up and announce the birth of a baby in the congregation. And he'd give you the basic details. When John Oates retired, the job of the session clerk was taken by Ron Bourne, who was a gynaecologist and obstetrician. And, mate, when he announced a baby's birth in the congregation, he gave you details the like of which you didn't want to know all this stuff. But he gave you all this incredible knowledge. It is incredible, isn't it? Now, listen to this statistic. From this time last week, 11 o'clock last Sunday, to 11 o'clock this Sunday, do you know that your heart has beaten 700,000 times? And, and it hasn't stopped. You know that because you're here. It hasn't got time for rest. It doesn't stop. Now, that's a remark. No wonder we all feel tired. It just pumps, pumps, pumps. Isn't that remarkable? The brightest light your eye can see is 400 times brighter than the dimmest light your eye can see. Isn't that incredible? My physio, who knows that I'm a Christian, he's looking at my knees, which are bad. And he said to me recently, you know, your mate, that is God, did a good job when he created the knee. We can't duplicate that. No duplication from a human point of view is as good as what God did originally. Now, look around, friends. Look at your hands. Look at your fingers. Look at your uh, uh, legs. And all of this is made wonderfully, beautifully, the psalmist says, by God. And under the sovereign hand of his providential hand, he has ordained every day that you will live. This is a great security here. I live best when I know that I am known, that I am accompanied, that I am shepherded and that I'm guided. It is a beautiful and classic psalm. So why ruin this psalm by adding verses 19 to 24? <laughs> you see, I've heard this psalm preached by someone who preached it up to verse 18 and then sat down. I thought, what a coward. Um, <laughs> I, I was the coward. <laughs> it's hard. I, I love watching that time when Queen Elizabeth's coffin comes in to the Westminster Hall and the choir of the Chapel Royal sing Psalm 139. But wait on, they sing 1 to 18. They don't sing 19, 20, 21, 22, and then they sing 23 and 24. So they omit the tough verses, and they are embarrassing verses, aren't they? Because we live in a time of virtue signalling and being politically correct. And it's a sign of our double-mindedness that I would rather be silent than being accused of being phobic or an extremist. Look what he says. If only you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Do I not hate those who hate you? I loathe or abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What do you do with that? Does my Christian life finish at verse 18? But David, inspired by the Spirit, didn't finish at verse 18. 
remember an older Presbyterian minister when I was just setting out in ministry saying to me, the secret of a happy ministry over 40 years is never be dogmatic. Oh, that's my opinion, but I'll leave it up to you. Never be dogmatic. It's pathetic, isn't it? A progressive state demands a progressive church, and the central creed of the progressive church is tolerance. You make no judgments. You make no definitive statements. The psalm doesn't stop at verse 18. The question is, do you? This is the world that God made. How do you, as one whom God made, who knows you and who is with you, live in a world which is dominated, verse 19, by the wicked, by people who turn to blood as a first resort? Verse 20, by people of malicious intent. I mean, we're talking about strong peer pressure here, aren't we? Peer pressure at school, peer pressure at the campus, peer pressure at work. It's tough. But what is it that we learnt back in Psalm 1, verse 1? Blessed is the person who does not walk with the wicked or stand with sinners or sit with mockers. That's not my address. That's not where my allegiance is found. Now, let me anticipate, I think, that some of you are probably saying, well, that's easy for you, Mr. Preacher. You live in a Christian bubble. You don't know what my work's like. You don't know how unforgiving it is. But I want you to know that we need to be prayerful for one another. It's difficult. It's difficult to show that you belong to this omni-God. It's difficult. But we need to be respectful And we need to be clear. It is a battle, the Bible says, and we are fellow soldiers. And as a friend of mine wrote recently, we are not so much in Switzerland, but in the Ukraine. And that's where we are. And we're in the midst of a battle. And as I go into this battle, do I draw a line under verse 18? Well, David knows that as he speaks in solidarity with God, that he can be superior. And so he prays, verse 23, search me, know my heart, test my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That great old hymn, by your call of mercy, by your grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Saviour, we are thine. There is to be a degree of separation between us who know the omni-God and the world who hates and ignores him. In our parish of Ashfield, a lady turned up one Sunday, Jean. She was, had been a, uh, a brethren, a closed brethren. They didn't meet, they believed the church was satanic. It was a very big thing for her to come to a church, but she came to see what it was actually like. She had a big hat on. And she had a big black Bible. She liked what she heard and she kept coming back. And I got to visit Jean. And every time I visited Jean, we'd open the Bible and talk together and she'd take off her glasses and say, when are you going to talk more about the doctrine of separation and the doctrine of holiness? Now, she said that, by the way, uh, after she poured herself a glass of whiskey about that tall. (laughs) But the doctrine of separation, she was right. David is alluding to that. My allegiance is with the God 
who knows me, who is with me, and who made me. Now, come with me, if you would, over to page 1797 in the New Testament, and let's look at what the Apostle Paul says uh, in answer to the same question. How do we live as God's people in a world which has divorced itself from God? And Paul is writing to the small church at Corinth, but we're going to come to chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, because Paul lays here the foundation for everything he's going to say. And he says, for Christ's love compels us. He uses a word which gives us no other option. It's like when you have a hose and you put your thumb over the hose and the stream of water gets larger because you've closed the aperture, the opening of the hose. Christ's love closes us off to all other options. Look at what he says, verse 14. We are convinced that one, Jesus, died for all and therefore those for whom he died, died. And he died for all. Now look at this verse. It's a wonderful verse because it takes us into the brain of Jesus on the cross. What was going through the brain of Jesus on the cross? What was his purpose? He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Remarkable verse. Heavenly Father, I am dying on this cross and the people for whom I am dying, I am dying that they should no longer live for self, but rather for me, who has died and was raised again. Now, the gospel is remarkable. He died for me, I live for him. Recently, I turned 75. We went out with a family for dinner. Because I was paying the bill, I believe I had the right to preach a sermon. So I preached a slight sermon. And I told them today, I prepared a sermon on this section in which I said that Jesus died for me, so the life I have, I live for him. And in the power of God's spirit, that's how I've been seeking to live since the age of 19. And I commended that to our children and our grandchildren. Now, Paul says he died for me. Therefore, he died to redeem us that we should no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, on that basis, come over a page to page 1798 and see what Paul says and he gives them six contrasts, living for him who died for us in a world which doesn't. Notice in verse 14 of chapter 6, he says, don't yoke yourself together with unbelievers. Then secondly, he said, righteousness and wickedness have nothing in common. Light and darkness, what fellowship do they have? Verse 15, Christ and Belial, or the devil, Satan, what harmony is there between the two? Believers and unbelievers, what do they have in common? And then the sixth contrast, look at it there. The temple of God has no alliance or union with idols. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And he says, uh, for we are the temple, verse 16, of the living God. We are the bricks. We are the church. We are the temple in which this God dwells and abides and wherever I go and when we're together as a people, it is God who lives in us. He quotes here, look at what he says next, verse 16, I will live with them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. You are part of the temple of God. I'm part of the temple of God. We are bricks in God's temple. Therefore, God says, verse 13, 17, come out from them and 
the separate. There is a distinction. It's a distinction by grace. There's nothing to be proud of or boastful about, but there is a distinction. And God promises when you come out from them, verse 18, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, Paul sums up verse 1 of chapter 7. Therefore, since we have this promise that God will be a father to us, dear friends, let's purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That means I must examine my business ethics, my practice ethics, my entertainments, my family culture. Does it reflect the fact that I am part of the temple of God and he dwells in that temple as my perfect father? Is there a degree of separation, a distinction between the ethics of the world, the entertainments of the world, the culture of the world? For we are the temple of the living God. He gave his life for me so that the life I have, I live for him who gave his life for me. Psalm 139. You say, wait on, you're getting old. What's this got to do with Athanasius? Oh, yes, Athanasius. This week, Maxine and I had our 16th grandchild. His name's Ozzie, O-double-Z-I-E. Poor kid. Um, <laughs> Ozzie. Can you imagine having the name Athanasius? As I listened that day on that Tuesday morning, I thought, yes, I wish I had another son that I could call Athanasius. What is it about Athanasius? Fourth century believer. Athanasius stood up against Arius, who was the most successful heretic in the life of the church. Arius taught that Jesus was less than God. Athanasius took a clear stand against him. The Roman emperor wanted a uniting church, so the Roman emperor threatened Athanasius, I'll exile you. And the Roman emperor, emperor exiled Athanasius five times, sent him out into the desert to get rid of the troublemaker. And Athanasius lived through four Roman emperors. Wouldn't it have been easier for Athanasius just to settle down and be comfortable, especially when he got old? Well, listen to what happened. One day a bloke comes up to Athanasius and says, Athanasius, why do you believe what you believe? Wouldn't it be more comfortable just to shut up? Why do you believe what you believe? The whole world is against you. And Athanasius responded, well, in that case, it is Athanasius against the whole world. In that case, it is Athanasius against the whole world. I wish I had a son and I could call him Athanasius, the omniscient God, the omnipresent God, the omnipotent God dwells in us as our father and he will have an omni-righteous family. That's the family DNA. That's when God calls us sons and daughters and I will be a father to you. It's by grace. Stand out clearly and humbly. What does the psalm say? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you as your people, as your living temple in which you live, as your family of sons and daughters, and we cry 
with David, our brother. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us, in me, and lead us, lead me in the way everlasting. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.